1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself self-guided public land elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hmm. Elk Shape Podcast. What's up, y'all? Dan the Fitness, man. So we're sitting down with Mark Livesey, Treeline Pursuits. We are cornering him on e-scouting but specifically how to use google earth better including klm files and top ruts so we're going to get pretty nerdy on this podcast and i would recommend listening to this one at a desktop with google earth open up on where you're hunting and try some of these techniques some of you already know how to do this stuff good for you you are smarter than me i couldn't figure it out And while we were recording this episode, I tried a lot of the stuff he was talking about and it really opened up my eyes and elevated my e-scouting game, which was a weakness. And as you know, this podcast is all about kind of finding your weakness and making it a strength. So let's go ahead and go through some of the discount codes, some of our sponsors, partners that help make this thing possible. And please just know that I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this Blue Collar Elk Hunting Podcast. We're all about making ourselves the best possible version of ourselves, and I really just appreciate you guys. You have a lot of options out there, so listening to this one means a lot to me. Tell a buddy, share it with a friend, somebody who could utilize this in their life, and make yourself better through elk hunting. So, Vortex Optics, I'm using the Ultra HD 10x42s. Holy smokes. Look out, European glass manufacturers. This is the real deal. And I would just encourage all y'all to find a local dealer and get your eyeballs through those things. Thank you, Vortex, for all that you do for Elk Shape Kinetrek Boots. I do have a discount code, y'all. The discount code is Elk Shape, and you can get $25 off their gaiters. And their gaiters are legit. Elk 101, Corey Jacobson. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast where we go over bulls that run away when you're bugling at them. Corey goes over some ways to overcome that. If you want to check out his University of Elk Hunting... Go ahead and enter the code ELKSHAPE, and you'll get 20% off that bad boy. That's at elk101.com. OnX Hunt, they also have a discount code ELKSHAPE to save 20% off. The most important piece of gear next to your bow and boots and backpack is your OnX on your phone. It's up there, guys, and I don't need to go through why. Just go ahead, get it, pick the state, or go elite and have all the states download your maps ahead of time and then you can send me an email saying thank you when you utilize it in the field for waypoints and tracking and overlays. It's a game changer. Exxon Mountain Gear just came out with the k 3 K3. I'm going to rock the 4,800. We are going to do a video on YouTube, so you can check that out and see for yourself the new and improved. We had to wait about two years, maybe maybe longer, but this new pack is a game changer. I can't wait to get my hands on it. It is shipped. It's headed my way. I'm going to put it to use immediately in idaho for antelope and then right into wyoming for elk september is here so close guys i can feel it i'm shooting a matthews vertex and traverse um i shoot the vertex pretty stinking well so i'm probably going to use that as my number one but that's not 100 finalized i'm still shooting the traverse quite a bit right now getting some reps through it but Matthews is what I switched to and I'm not looking back. Speaking of my bow, I'm going to use Easton Axis uh, Match Grade and I'm tipping those with Grim Reaper Broadhead. It's the Micro Hades 3-Blade also known as the Pro Series. Check those out. They're, they're cheaper than most broadheads. They're sharper than all broadheads in my opinion. They fly awesome and they punch holes through elk hide which is tough. On the end of my arrow I have Helical and it's actually to the left due to clocking my arrows and finding out that they kind of wanted to spin to the left. So I went to a left helical to maximize that stabilization. I use, you know, just basic boning blazers, two inches, and they're awesome. As far as discount codes, let's go through a few that we left off. We have Caribou Game Bags out of Colorado. Get yourself the Wapiti Kill Kit they have. Those game bags are Made just for elk. They're synthetic. They will preserve your meat. Use a discount code ELKSHAPE to get 15% off. And then put that meat in your Siberian cooler. They're out of Bozeman, Montana. They're better than the Y brand. I'm serious. And you'll see when you get yours. If you get the Alpha, it's 85 quart. I actually have two. I'm taking to Wyoming. You can use a discount code ELKSHAPE2019. Get yourself 10% off. Speaking of food, Off Grid Food Co., just remember, guys, they drop their new food each week on Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you go on there and they're always sold out, well, wait for Wednesday nights. Except for this coming Wednesday, don't because I'm buying my food and I want to be able to get whatever I want. Definitely try the bison and definitely try the quail. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE2019, save 10%. I'm bringing the e-bike to Wyoming. It's been a game changer. I've been a hater for a long time because I didn't have one. Now that I have an e-bike, look out. It's a huge advantage. I also have a trailer with mine. Use discount code ElkShape300, save 300 bucks off your e-bike, and it's way sturdier than other e-bikes. It's built for hunting specifically with high-end components, and they're bulletproof. Get yourself an extra battery. I have the Mule. I think it's a thousand watt. Don't quote me, but it's awesome. And that's our uh, that's our business end. Now let's get to this podcast, guys. Get your pen and paper out. Get in front of a desktop. It is time to get better at East County with Mark Livesey. here we go. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I am recording with Mark Livesey, Montana transplant. He lives in Missoula, originally from Missouri, I believe. Mark, what's up, buddy?
3: Hey, Dan. How are you doing today, man?
2: I'm living the dream, man. And uh yeah, same same here. Today's podcast is ultra critical. I'm going to put a little pressure on you because um what we're about to talk about is stuff that you just it's hard to find good subject matter experts in this arena and I don't know anyone better and I've seen your stuff, I've listened to you on podcasts, I knew I wanted to get you in front of me and then I finally met you in person at Ryan Lampers' Western Hunting Summit. And to be honest with you, um not to inflate your ego, but your presentation was the one I really wanted to listen to as a camper, as just an attendee, because I felt like it was the biggest chink in my armor. And if you remember my talk at the summit, it was all about prioritizing what you suck at the most, what you're most insecure about. Put it up for, uh, at the top of the list. And digital e-scouting is there for me. Like I have a huge advantage. I live out west. But for those that don't, and the majority of my listeners, I don't think live out west. We need you on here to teach. And there's so many things you're going to cover Uh, I'm going to narrow your focus, your scope today to just Google Earth 101, maybe 201 KLM files. So guys listening today, this is one of those podcasts where if you're driving, which a lot of you are and you're listening, this is one you're going to want to re-listen to in front of a computer and actually try the stuff that we're going to learn. Let's get into your background, Mark. This, This podcast is about crushing the elk hunting learning curve and no one's better than you to talk about your learning curve, a guy who was driving 20 plus miles to elk hunt every year let's can you tell us about your personal elk hunting journey
3: well so you know when i got started i was about let's see i was about 24 years old roughly around in that range i know exactly i think night nine, around nineteen eighty nine nine ish 90 ish somewhere around there and my boss i worked for an organ tissue transplant company And uh, my boss, we were big whitetail hunters from Missouri, obviously. I grew up whitetail hunting. I I just was obsessed with whitetail hunting. I probably, you know, killed on average 10 to 12 whitetails a year with my bow. And I just loved whitetail hunting. Well, then one day I decided that, you know, I need to go elk hunting. And I've been thinking about it. My boss just mentioned it to me, and I said, let's just back up and go. Well, back in those days, for your (laughs) listeners— There was no, there might, I don't even, I don't think there's even Google Earth. I I don't know. I wasn't using Google Earth at the time. There was no Onyx. There was no Gaia. There was nothing. And you ordered your national, you just took a gamble on what national forest you wanted to hunt. You ordered that map by mail. They mail it to you. You look over that map. You kind of like pick a spot you thought looked elkish on a, on a paper map and then I'd go to the library, and I'd literally check out 100 topo maps <laughs> and just start pouring through them. And then when I got it all figured out, what I thought figured out, we'd take, duck, we'd take a clear packing tape, and we'd buy the topo maps at that point. And then we'd tape over those maps to waterproof them, and then we'd mark them up with a permanent marker. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of how my digital scouting started. But that first elk hunt I went on, was we went in a minivan, Dan, with oh a two wheel drive, <laughs> a two wheel drive minivan, <laughs> up into the mountains of Colorado. I had never seen an elk in my life, you know, live uh, and walking around. And um, we we're in this minivan, and I ended up getting out to sickness that first year. Real, we went right up to eleven thousand feet first, right off the bat. I got really sick, so we had to go to Crested Butte, spend the night in a hotel, to get myself back to reality and ended up going up, sitting on a stump and a cow walked five yards from me. I didn't even know what was coming at first. I thought it was a horse was loose running at first. Ended up shooting a cow elk on my first hunt. And uh, that's how that man, I was hooked from that day forward. And there's been a lot of evolution in my digital scouting since then. <laughs> and then sort of fast forward, that's kind of how my start. And then three years ago, I own a business back in Missouri, and we produce events and triathlons and marathons and things like that. And my business finally got to the point where I was working seven days a week, hundred hours, you know, eighty hundred hours a week, and I just was run down. I wasn't hunting as much as I wanted to. I was getting out of shape. I used to be a triathlete. I just was in a bad spot in my life. My marriage was in trouble. Everything was in trouble. And my wife just came to me. She says, we're moving west. She says, you got one year to get these businesses sold, ready. We're leaving on March 18th. And she had no idea what we're getting into. She just knew I loved it out here, and she knew I loved elk hunting. And she knew I needed something new, you know, to re-jump my life. So we packed up, and I'll be darned, on March 18th, one year from that day, we left, and we moved to Missoula, Montana. And... Man, I've been like a kid in a candy store ever since.
0: <laughs> Gosh,
2: that's so cool! And you're here finally. How did you? Uh, how did you get into llamas, man? We have we can't talk to you without talking about <laughs> your llamas, man.
3: Well, so I met Bo Beatty um, basically by email. He's he's the owner of Wilderness Ridge Trail llamas down in Idaho Falls, and he's one of the nice. I mean, this guy's quality. But anyway, him and I became friends, and I was on a waiting list for a while for llamas. I decided, I looked to go towards it. I decided that if I was coming out here, that I wanted, you know, some type of pack animal so I could get, I love the backcountry, and the deeper I can go, the better. We'll probably talk about that a little bit, but... I just love it back there. That doesn't mean there's more elk in the backcountry than there is closer to the roads. I mean, there's, you know, it depends on your spots and all that stuff. But I just love being back there. And with a backpack in September, you know, you're just limited. I mean, even even you, Dan, there's a limit to how far that Dan can go in that kind of temperature and get an elk out. 100%. And, you know, especially if you're forced to make a couple trips, like if you're solo hunting or something, I... I hunt a, I'm hunt lucky now. I get to hunt a lot of days a year. Uh, last year, I hunted 108 days. And, um, you know, kind of for everything. And um, I, I just, I knew at 53 years old, even in my best shape, 50% of my time I spent solo hunting. I needed a partners. And I didn't want to be messed with. I didn't want to, the horses was just too much work. And, you know, it's just, I need something I could get in with, hunt that didn't interfere with my hunting and come out. And so I found Bo and I started researching these, Kakara, care these pack, these working class llamas. Man, I was sold immediately. Well, then the problem was, Dan, I, I was ready for llamas like way before I got them, but I couldn't find them. They were just, there's just hardly none available that are ready to go pack ready llamas. They're in such high demand. They're difficult to find. And these are not your Craigslist free llamas. Let's just be honest about that. Um, <laughs> I know guys that go that route. And they have. I know some guys that have had horror stories. And I've seen a few success stories. But I didn't have time. I'm 53 years old, Dan. I don't have time for that. I need to know what I'm buying and what I'm getting into. So I saved up my money. <laughs> and I was ready so I bought four llamas, ready to go, four and five year old llamas, that were all pack ready, commercial trained, and uh, I hit it hit hit it that year with those llamas. Man, it's been a game changer to my
2: hunting. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like, so, where do you keep your stock? And I mean, you had to get. You, you, I assume you just got to get a diesel truck. You got to get a horse trailer. Like, what's the details? See, that's on the that? thing. I, I,
3: I pull four llamas with a two horse horse trailer with my tundra everywhere I want to go.
2: Oh my gosh.
3: Uh, see, the, the great thing about llamas is my biggest llama is about 400, just a little over 400 pounds. So they're between 300 and 400 pounds. And so, you know, two or three of those in a horse trailer is really not that much. And, um, you know, I rent llamas too. And so, a lot of guys that rent llamas, they're bringing, you know, they're driving a one hundred and fifty pickup, or they're driving a tundra. Or they I mean, don't get me wrong, it has. You have to have some type of towing capacity, but if you can tow a boat um, or a small camper trailer or something, then you can definitely move llamas around. Uh, it's not like a two thousand pound horse, you know. You're not dealing with that kind of situation, and uh, and that's another thing that's beautiful about it is that they're just so easy to deal with. And I can fit six llamas. Now, not, I wouldn't keep six llamas in a trailer for eight hours, but if I was going to do a three hour hunt away from my, which is about average for me, three to five hours for where I'd like to hunt, I can take six llamas, three to five hours, all every place I want to go. Yep. In a, in a two horse horse trailer. So no, you don't have to, that's a, you know, a lot of people think that, but um, now if you have a bigger truck, it's probably
2: all the better, but it's not a requirement. Okay, well. So you were at. Uh, I was going to say packing your stuff in. You're still hiking in, obviously, but you got yeah. all your gear on four llamas. And dude, when you kill something, holy smokes, that's the that's the deal right there. I mean, that's the game. I'm changer. rolling out one trip. So, oh. I, like I said, I love to I love to solo hunt.
3: And uh, well, for an example, the first year I had them, solo hunting rifle season is brutal cold. Um, I mean, it was, I was run. You know, I was on my last days. I was out of, you know, about out of my food. I kill an elk about eight miles in. Um, I loaded that elk up quartered that thing up, loaded it up. We came out one trip we're home in an hour and an hour and a
0: half. Hmm.
3: And my llamas never even missed a beat. And, that was the first year that that was the first animal I, I knew then there that I was onto something, and uh, you know, and so the thing is, you know, you mentioned I love the hiking part, I love the backpacking part, I don't mind carrying my camp, I don't, I love all of that, but the reality is, like I said, at fifty three, and not, it's not just my, I know I say that a lot, it's not my age, it's more about the days that I'm blessed to hunt. Yeah. you know as well as I know you, in the best shape anything longer than a 10 day hunt you got to start taking some precautions to just to get through the wear and tear of a hard elk hunt that lasts longer than 10 days and even some guys 7 days is kind of then they're worn down after 7 days and then you're 10 days in you start shooting elk things get western real fast and this, you know and I know that this is a hot topic right now, but I like to bring out every ounce of that meat. I don't leave a thing. I bring the rib cages out. I bring everything out. And that's real difficult to do with a backpack.
2: Oh my gosh. No, and, I've never taken a rib cage out. That would be awesome. Yeah. I wouldn't even know what I to take do. take it
3: all. That's so cool. We take all the organ meat. I, take, I bring the livers. I bring the hearts. I bring, You know, and, and sometimes if I, if I was boning out backpack, I may have to sacrifice a few of those things. Let's be honest. You would. And uh, so, I mean, I'm just being honest. A lot of guys, you know, I think what the reality is that probably happens. In, I think a lot of guys would like to, but the reality is it's 74 degrees and, they, and, and it's not dropping much below 50 and they're having trouble keeping their meat cool. And they got to be, they're on the, they're on the move. To, and, and the other thing too, Dan, I have a personal aversion. To making two trips and picking an elk up, <laughs> <laughs> one and done, baby.
2: I like to. I don't like to go back, Dan. <laughs> oh man, you should come with me on my four trips. That's the worst. But well, dude, this podcast is gonna drop August 9th. That's uh, just way it lined out for scheduling. So most elk hunts don't start out west till I'd say well Utah is one of the earlier ones with a August twentieth, give or take, and then Oregon's yep. usually August twenty fifth. Nevada's August 25th, but the rest of the the main over the counter states, I think Colorado might be the last weekend in August. Uh Idaho will be September 1st or September 6th, and then you guys are September 6th or 7th this year in Montana. Uh um, yeah. Wyoming well, I know, September I- 1. Yeah. I mean, so we these guys have time to put Google Earth and kind of finalize their hunt plans. So I know we're trying to get to Google Earth, but I have to backfill with what my takeaways were at your lecture. was like, dude, you got to have hunt plans. And a hunt plan is not like day one, this ridge, and then day two is just the next ridge over. No, 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 no. These are complete different areas. And you started your lecture with like really good, like here's how to pick where to start. And I guess we should just go into some of the guys – you're looking at your unit or units. Here are the areas not to go. And what I remember you saying was like, man, stay away from like the trailheads that ha- that are at the end of a dead end road. Stay away from campgrounds that are super paved all the way to them or there's a lake nearby. Because that's going to be where everyone's port of entry is. And I think reverse engineering your approach is kind of like what you were talking about. So let's talk about just basic hunt plan 101 and then we're going to kind of go segue into – Getting nerdy on Google Earth.
3: Okay, so to kind of give some, you know, precursor on this real quick is I know we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but like you mentioned, this is a real important part that gets skipped by a lot of people. They want to jump right in to Google Earth, or they want to jump right into Onyx, or whatever they're using, and they want to just start looking at spots. Well, you if you if you really want to do it right, you really got to do your background, in my opinion. Yes. One is like you said, one is really looking at all the available data to find the area that you would like to hunt first by harvest stats and go hunt and TopRut and TopRut.com, GoHunt.com, using the hunt planners in the different states, looking at statistics, looking at elk harvest reports, looking at elk management reports, just whatever you're using. Your buddy tells you this hot spot, whatever somebody's got to get you in the right unit or the right geographical area that you want to kind of start with based on is there a good population of huntable elk in this area and so we're not going to this podcast really not about that but that's kind of step one is kind of deciding all right i'm looking at this area this area this area then once you get these areas then you start looking at the areas themselves and the way i always start dan is i i hate to go old school on people, but I do not turn my computer on first. Now that does not mean that I don't put Google Earth on and fly around and look at the overviews, and I do a lot of that, let's be honest. But when I'm really starting to break down an area that I'm going to hunt, one of the first things I do is I pull out my National Forest map. You know, not to brag or not to tell everyone this is what they got to do, but I mentioned this in the class. I own every National Forest map in almost every state that I hunt, and I I hunt three states a year every year for sure, and sometimes I'll hunt four for elk, and I apply in seven or eight states every year, um, but I will always hunt three states, and it, you know it usually rotates Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. One of those of those four, I'm hunting three. Um, obviously, Wyoming, you know, unless you're willing to buy special tags. You're going to wait every every two or three years to get a Wyoming tag. But first thing I do is I pull out my national forest map, like you said, and I I identify all of the access spots. You know, you call them port of entries. That's a cool, good way of labeling it. I haven't used that before. Every place that I feel like hunters are going to access this general area from, and I circle. Um, those trailheads and how I do it is it's kind of simple. It's so, so stupid. It's ridiculous, but it works so well is I look at the, the um, distance chart on the topo map. I make a cardboard circle and the good news is they're pretty, they're pretty common amongst all the topo maps, but some of them are different scales. I look at the mileage scale. I make a two mile and a one mile cardboard circle. I know this is arts and crafts, you know, (laughs) kindergarten stuff, but guys, but guys, this is legit. You take that circle, you center it on that trail and you draw a two mile circle around every trailhead, every dead end road and every campground. And uh, like I said, especially the ones (laughs) that have lakes on them or, you know, really um, things that are going to draw people in, not very far off paved roads, whatever. Anyway, two miles around every trailhead. Then I take the one mile circle and I trace all the roads that are open. Now that takes a little bit of work. Most national forest maps nowadays, at least the new, ones, have motor vehicle use map built into the maps. They, they include charts for that, but they are not 100% accurate. I want to warn everyone. They are not even, most of the time, they're not even that close. You have to go to the National Forest site, download their motor vehicle use maps, and then I read through every road in this whole area. And I won't take a highlighter, and I will highlight every open road based on that motor vehicle use description on my National Forest map. I know that's a lot of work, but it it pays off when you kind of see the end results. I've got all my roads that are open to vehicle traffic highlighted i've got my trailheads campgrounds, all dead-end roads that kind of stuff um i've got circled with two mile radius circles now i'm going to take that one mile circle and and drag it along the road and basically draw a line uh, basically a one mile buffer on each side of that road of the open roads and then i sit back and i look at that map very carefully And I start, it is amazing what starts to jump out. All the spots that are not inside a circle or inside the line are areas that I kind of try to look at. Now, that doesn't mean, I know I'm going to get hate mail on this. That does not mean you can't find an elk right off the road. I mean, we talked elk nut, present. I mean, they drive the roads at night, bugle elk. I mean, that's fine. I know lots of guys do that. That's not my gig. I don't like doing it. I don't, I like going in the back country <clears throat> and I've got a lot of reasons for that. But one, I got llamas. How am I going to justify having llamas when I'm camped down the side of the road? <laughs> no. I mean, let's be honest. Somebody see me on the side of the road, with my llama's tied up. They'll be like, what's that dude doing?
2: Well, dude, um, if you gave me the option of hunting elk, there's more density of elk, but there was more pressure and versus maybe way less density elk, but they haven't been messed with. Dude, my odds are with the the less density, less mess. That's right. Period.
3: You know, I know this is about the calling is easy. I mean, it's just a lot of things I like better about unpressured elk. But anyway, and to be honest with you, I think the elk in general, in my personal opinion, especially after the first week of archery season, they're going to head for these places. That doesn't mean that they're in the deepest, darkest, ugliest canyons, there is at this point the rut is on the elk are going to be where they want to be that, that that's just it they're not necessarily looking for seclusion at that point so but i do think they're looking to get in these places away from the pressure so basically what i call that process that we just explained is that's my first step is analyzing the pressure you know, establishing the pressure points. And I look for these spots that are outside of these, these circles. Uh, and then I call that my core hunting area. And then I start looking at these core areas. And then that's when I start breaking them down, Dan, and start really analyzing the terrain, the features that I'm looking for. What, what are the features that I think hold the most elk and I look, that's when I start breaking out my Google earth and my other tools. Once I've got that first step done, but I will tell you, if you take the time to trace the unit, I, that's another thing I do. I didn't mention I trace every unit. I've got every single unit in Montana traced on national forest maps. It took me a week, over a week to do it.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I
3: have every, I have every unit. I read every description of every boundary. And I trace all, whatever, 100-some units there are in, in Montana. Everybody says, well, why would you do that? I said, you would not believe how familiar I am now with where these units are, the roads that are around them, that they're used as the board. I mean, just that process is so valuable for what I call historical knowledge. As you're circling these trailheads, as you're doing this road outline, as you're looking for dead-end roads, as you're looking at the motor vehicle use map, and you're translating it to your national forest map. As you're doing all these things I talked about, you're learning so much more than you think you're learning about your area. And um, I tell you, I went on a hunt where I circumvented this system one year. A couple years ago, I hate to even admit it, it was in Montana when I lived here. I found this great spot. I found these two trailheads. It, everything looked isolated. It looked amazing. We got in there. We're calling elk, right, I mean, tons of elk. And we just kept going further and further. And the further we got, Dan, I kept running into guys. I kept seeing a couple guys. And I'm like, what in the world? We're nine miles back, and there's guys running around with date packs on. And come to find out, I had missed a dead-end road that was open on the motor vehicle use map. There was this obscure dead-end road that came in on the back side of this little ridge. And these guys were popping over this ridge a couple of miles and we were 10, 11 miles back running into guys that I, because I did not identify that access point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're driving from wherever and you got seven days to hunt and you spent two days getting, and then you start running, man, you wasted over half your hunt. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't elk there with these other guys. That's that, That's not my point. But my point was it wasn't what I – Thought it was because I didn't do this groundwork that we're talking about. So anyway, that's I know that's and this takes I know this is simplistic at this point, but this part takes a lot of discipline to sit there and do this. When you want to jump onto Google Earth, you want to look at the canyons and you want to do the flyovers. And but I found that this works extremely well for me. You know, and, uh, and another thing I might add to this, and you mentioned this, but kind of the last precursor to this, when you mentioned the hunt plan, you know, I'm a real believer in this. You you build your hunt plan, your hunt plan is your entire hunt, the way I look at it. So, hunt plan is your entire 10-day hunt, you're going on this 10-day hunt, you're going to Idaho, That your hunt plan is basically that hunt, but inside that hunt plan, you have a In my opinion a minimum of three but i usually try to go for five hunt areas now when i say a hunt area it's like what you described it's not a ridge it's not a north slope it's not where we're going to go day one two i'm talking totally unique hunting areas that you can conduct the entire 10-day hunt in it usually in my opinion it usually requires relocation there's very few times and i've been able to identify hunt areas that i could just keep packing from one place to the other now i have been able to do it more and more with my llamas but i'm talking about a radical change um like you're going back to the truck and you're repacking in so the reason i like to have that dan we talked i mean just like this case you show up and the roads are closed that maybe there was a bridge out. I had that happen in the breaks one year. I was playing the Missouri, the Missouri breaks in Montana, and we had this whole hunt area planned out. It was awesome. We got there, and the rains had washed out the road. We were 9, 10 miles away from our spot, and we couldn't get to it. Well, I luckily had hunt area number two all planned out, and we switched to it immediately. We didn't have to pull over on the side of the road, get out our phones, and figure out what we were going to do. By a hunt area, I hope that's clear, is that The hunt plan is your overview of your entire hunt, but your hunt area is separate, distinct locations that you could conduct your entire hunt in potentially. And I'll be honest with you. I do four or five. I've rarely made it past two, rarely even get to three if something really drastic is happening. Uh, But the process, I've mentioned this a ton, the process of preparing these hunt plans And these hunt areas gives you so much historical knowledge. And the other thing I will add, when I do my five hunt areas, it's amazing how many times I think this is my prime, this is my number one hunt area. But when I'm all done, my number five is like, oh no, my number five, I'm going to go to number And I rearrange those hunt areas. As I work through them, I have found little gems that I might have missed or just something starts to make more sense to me. And I'll end up reprioritizing where I want to start because I worked through five hunt areas. That makes sense. And, um, you know, I just don't like to leave anything to chance. If you've got a limited amount of time, you have got to, you want to spend your maximum amount of time hunting, the more prep work you can do and documentation. And when I say hunt plans, I'm talking written hunt plans, written out day by day, um, kind of what my strategy is yeah. going to be and uh, And everybody can kind of do it their own way, but um, that's kind of the way I do it
2: well, Nevada last year elk tag i we moved camp five different times, and these were complete different radical changes, like you mentioned and we luckily, I had five different plans i don't think they were nearly as in depth as they needed to be. I could have saved myself a lot of time by having done more research, but my point is is dude, we had to change five different locations because. It just the elk hunting wasn't as good. And when we got to the last one that I knew of, we hit it out of the park and killed a bull a couple of days later, and we were in elk like we had never been. And that was day that was day eight or nine. So you can imagine seven days were squandered. We were in Nevada where there was no cell phone service, and it was a really remote, rugged country. So I've also had another hunt where wildfires, and that's something that, happens now is wildfires you don't yeah. know what's going to catch on fire you don't know what kind of snowpack or summer we're going to have and i've had a lot of fires pop up in the last 10 years that i'm not used to before that so you got to be ready for all those things
3: well uh, like your example um in your nevada can you you know if you wouldn't have had those plans and you wouldn't have had your offline data or we haven't even talked about that but you know most guys now are using on x or guy or or some back base camp or whatever some type of tool and you know how important it is to have that offline data downloaded because of like your Nevada example yep i mean i know i know guys that have had to pack up drive into town so they can get cell service to get new maps on their phones and switch to a hunt area wasted an entire day day and a half of their hunt
2: and it's not a fast and, download by the way when you go to town it's no, not it's fast not, it's
3: not it's not but, you know, look at that example. I mean, your fifth spot, which was your lowest priority spot, ended up being super productive for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, you know, elk hunting, I mean, you can, I don't care how good you are at digital scouting. I don't care how good a hunter you are. You're, you're just going to have to, It. I talk about elk hunting as an odds game. It's all, you've got the best elk hunters I know, they put the most odds in their favor, and your example is a perfect one for for my for my kind of my goals. Most guys, Dan, I think listening to this podcast, and I'm not saying everybody, but I say a majority would have a spot. They would go into it and they would live and die in that spot. They might move once, and it'll be a radical move because they're not prepared to move, but they just haven't seen any elk, so they'll make some hail mary. You know, fly by to see their pants move and, you know, pray that they'll get into a spot that has some elk. But they have no idea where the pressures are, no idea where the trailheads are for sure, no idea what roads are open. They just know there's not elk in their area, so they're just gonna make a move. And then that's it. Most guys cannot, are not capable of doing that third, fourth, fifth move. Now, one of the reasons you're able to do it is fitness as well. I mean, the better shape you are and the more fit you are, making these moves makes makes life a lot simpler. So if you're ultra fit, you're more capable of that. And that's even more reason to do these hunt areas. If you have a planned out attack, you know where you're coming in from, you've analyzed all the pressures, you know where you're going to, what trail edge, you know where you're going to go in at, you know where you're going to camp at exactly. You've taken a lot of this physical work. You haven't eliminated it, but you've streamlined it. You've got a solid strategy. I'm very particular about marking all of my campsites before I get in the field. It is the worst thing in the world to be looking for a campsite in the middle of the night when you're packing in.
0: No question. And
3: Google… And Google Earth nowadays, especially with my Longmas, I you know, I like to they don't have to have water every single day, but I like to camp by a water source and stuff. So that's why I just feel like analyzing saddles and benches and places you want to camp in canyons and meadows and wherever you're wanting to camp is way better done on Google Earth than it can be boots on the ground. It's one of the few things that I feel you can do better with looking at the just the train and the overview on Google Earth than you ever can. Um, boots on the ground you know if you're if you're hunting a glassing area camping near your glassing spots and analyzing we're going to talk about this coming up on google using the tilt functions and stuff that's all stuff that you need to do ahead of time um because i just feel like you're going to put your camp in the best possible spot you know and there's something mentally too dan we haven't even talked about this you mentioned a lot about this you talked at the western hunting summit But just getting your mind right, your mental well-being and just, you know, setting your priorities in your life. And and when you're hunting, there's nothing better than having a spot that you're just struggling in. But you know that you've got something in your back pocket. You know that you're going to give it one more day and you're not even going to think about it. And you're going to move. You're going to hit this spot. You're going to pack into that camp. And you're going to be glassing that night from this spot that you've already identified. I can't tell you how many times, just the just the rush of just calm that it gives you, knowing that you have that all prepared, versus trying to figure stuff out on the fly, and uh, it, it's just I I it, I don't I'm probably oversimplifying this, but when you're tired and you're demoralized and you're 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 you know, your food, you're not used to the food you've been eating. You're, maybe you're not getting enough calories. You're not certainly not getting enough sleep. All these factors are messing with your mental ability to j- make good judgment in the field. And these hunt plans and these hunt areas and these, all these points of interest and your campsites and your glassing spots and all your elk hunting strategy, if you've got some amount of that worked out, you're going to make far better judgments than you ever could If you've got nothing.
2: Well, the thing you said in your lecture that really spoke to me was like, and I'll just simplify it was dude last, last year in Nevada day five, I finally got a shot opportunity, like finally. And we were in a spot with hardly any elk and I missed a bull at 40 yards. I didn't have time to range. So I guessed him for 45 and I, and he was uphill steep shot and my arrow just went right over and shaved his back and he was a nice bull and he took off running and we went back to camp and i felt sorry for myself and i was like literally kind of at one of those breaking points where i had the hunt plan i looked at the maps i looked at what i'd written down and i knew i had another like we had blown those elk out we were done that spot was done we had one bull in that entire area and i just missed him so we literally had to like move camp at in the dark that night, and I was pissed that I missed the bull. And if we hadn't had that plan, I, pr- I could have literally talked myself into going home or taking the morning off. Or But no, we knew right where to go for the next day to put ourselves in the best position to get the job done. And you talked about that in your lecture. And I, I remember at that lecture going, dude, he's so right. So that's, yeah. like, that's like why you do this. So um, how do we do the the – Once we do all our due diligence and we're ready to Google Earth it up a little bit, how do like Google Earth Pro? What are we downloading to our desktop? What do we need? Okay, so now we're you know, and again, I just want to be clear on this. We're
3: focusing on Google Earth, and maybe we'll do some subsequent podcasts down the road. But I simultaneously will use Google Earth uh, on X and Gaia and Gaia. Those three tools kind of simultaneously but i do spend a lot of time on google earth i think google earth has better aerial photo um views their zooms are better than most of the than onyx and gaia both i think that they've got if you get into the kml stuff which we're going to talk about i think there's some features that really open up google earth and but i want to be clear I'll mark a lot of points on Google Earth, but those points are going to be exported out of Google Earth and moved into my hunt application, whichever one I'm using. Because obviously you're not using Google Earth in the field. Um, I like to use Google Earth when I'm just scouting because I like some of the features that we're going to talk about. Most people will download Google Earth Pro. That's what I recommend. It's free nowadays. That used to be a $400 program. Really? Yeah, you, yeah. I don't know if most of you will realize that, but you can get Google Earth. But Google Earth Pro was a paid program for many years. And so now you can just get it free. It's no big deal. You just go to search Google Earth Pro. I highly recommend you use the desktop version. The online version, um, they have an online Google Earth now. It's okay if you're just going to look at something quick, but I, I, I just don't think it has the tools. And I've used it a few times, and I just – I have trouble with I, – and I want to use all my data points, all my KML layers we'll talk about. And, um, but anyway, Google Earth Pro, download it to your desktop, Mac, or PC. You know, Most of you are probably already using it. But what most guys I find when they – I've had guys come over to my house, and I pull up my Google Earth, and they're like, well, what's
0: that? <laughs> what's that?
3: That would be me. What's that? I'm like, well, those are KML layers. Well, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, that's really the whole power of Google. Google Earth by itself. In my opinion, is useless. I hate to be that point, but it's on overview only. You've got satellite view only. You can look at, you can tilt, and you can look at some things, but you can't see contour lines. You can't see steepness. You can't um, see trails. You now Google Earth has you know some points of interest. Um, over-labeling is what I guess what I want to call it. There's a few things that are labeled on the satellite view, of course, but there's just nothing really you can use. I'll just be honest with you. Trailheads and all this stuff. So most guys will look at a spot on Google Earth and then they'll immediately switch over to another app to get into the details. Well, I think that's a mistake. So what I do is set up my the first thing I want to talk about I think is how to set up your Google Earth just to get started. So the very first thing I do is download Google Earth Pro. The next thing I will do is go to is go to Google Earth Pro, go to preferences, and the first thing comes up says 3D view. Um, I make sure that the compress little compress is checked. Um. The next thing, I don't mess with many many settings on this, but the one I do mess with is Elevation Exaggeration. It says Elevation Exaggeration also scales 3D buildings and trees for you guys that are following along. You just go to Preferences. It's in the 3D View tab. And I will set that to 1.5 or 1.75, even 2 sometimes. What that does, it makes the steep look a little steeper. And it just gives you a – I think it gives you a better overview when you're – because the whole reason you're using Google Earth, in my opinion, is for the 3D effect. 100%. So you can really – and I think that the setting it comes set with is a little too low to see it in these extreme mountain areas where we like to hunt. Um, I love to set that – in that one like right mine right now is set at 1.75
2: well mine was set up at 1.0 so i just changed it to 1.75 oh you're gonna have it's gonna just give you a better
3: everything's what i'm gonna say is it's gonna look a little steeper than maybe it is in reality but it's gonna pop like all your little glassing points are just gonna be like oh there's one right that's a that's great it just makes things pop i guess the best way i can say it so the next setting that I want to tell everyone about is the cache setting. and you want to set your disk cache size to at least 2,000. Um, I don't know. sometimes it comes like that. I don't know that it, I, I don't know. I, I mindset at 2000 right now. and you want to clear that cache from time to time. Google Earth remembers a lot of what you're doing and it caches stuff. And it's not to get too technical, but if you're having problems with Google Earth crashing on you, like it'll just crash. Google Earth is notorious for that, especially when you start doing what I'm telling you about adding a bunch of KML layers. When you start adding and turning off a bunch of these layers on and off, on and off, it, it will tend to want to crash every now and then. So you can, to help with that, you can clear those caches. Okay, It doesn't do anything to your data. It just frees up that like, internal memory for, for Google Earth, so to speak. So those are only the two things I would touch. Everything else, I'd pretty much leave the way they come for the most part. Um, you know, sometimes I'll change my flying speed just so it, it's a little slower. Googler tends to want to fly real quick. Because Google remember, Google is designed, like, look at the whole world. You can fly around real easy. But when you're looking at a, at a tight little spot or little area, sometimes – you notice Google Earth moves too quick when you're zooming in and out. So you can change that on the navigation tab on that fly-to-speed. I've got mine set at 1.96 uh, on the fly-to-speed, and I seem to – that's kind of in the middle, a little bit less than medium, more towards the slow side. Um, I don't know what you know, everybody's is, but those are just the three simple things. you. And, again, you don't have to do these things. These are just things I've found that are beneficial. Okay, so the next thing that I always do, first thing is you're going to want to download the KML file called Earth Point Topo Map. So if you do a Google search for Earth Point Topo Map, you'll download this file. It'll be called a KML file. It'll have Earth point such and such dot KML. And you'll want to open that up. With Google Earth, you'll just go to file, open, and you'll open that EarthPoint topo map up. I just can't believe how many guys don't use this. I mean, a lot of guys listening probably do, and they're like, come on, dude, talk about something we, are, we don't know. But there's so many guys I run into that do not know this exists. But EarthPoint topo map is every USGS quadrangle map in one file. For the whole, I mean, everywhere. So you download it, you open it, and now you've got topographic map layers in Google Earth. And all you have to do is click, oh, the one thing you're going to want to do, the backup. I think the way Google Earth, the new version, and again, I'm sorry, I haven't done this for a while, so I haven't tested this. It's probably going to open it up and put it in your folder called Temporary Places. So what you're going to want to do is drag that earth point topo in Google earth on the side, you know, on the side, you've got your column with all your my right. under my plates. You're going to want to drag it from temporary places up to the, my places folder. Cause the way Google earth works, if you don't know this, everything you put into Google earth, every point you put in, puts it in temporary places and then you can save it. It'll ask if you want to save or you want to keep because it'll go away Um, and you'll have to do it again if you don't if you don't move it into my places and now it will save it in temporary places. It will save it there if you tell it to do that, I, I believe. But here's the reason I don't want that. I want all of my data in my places because I always back my data up in Google Earth. I will click on the my places Line the very top line if you click on it now you must be clicked on it you can't be clicked anywhere else you have to click on my places and then you go to file and you go save and you say save my places and then that will save your entire folder so that you can put it on Google Drive and you can put it somewhere as a backup guys once you've done a lot of Google Earth work you want to back up your data Google Earth is notorious For getting corrupted. If you haven't had it happen to you. It's going to happen. And it will not open. And you've just lost all your stuff. So you want to save your my places folder from time to time. I'm not saying every time you use it. I'm not saying every week. But I save it three or four or five times a year at least. To a separate location on my computer. Um, You know and if you want to know more about that. I'm not going to get too technical into that kind of stuff. You can search how to google earth for how to handle the my places folder um but make sure you you keep everything in your my places folder so that when you save it it all saves in one simple file anytime you need to re replace it or uh, you know install a new version of google earth and put your my you're right back in business you didn't lose a single thing
2: okay so i just so put, put the the topo layer on and I'm just following along with okay. you. It's been pretty easy. I had to download it, and my mind's already kind of blown. Like I'm looking at Google Earth via topo map. It's so sick.
3: So you haven't done this before?
2: No. Are you
3: just BSing me?
2: I shit you not, brother. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all. So, um... And I'm doing a screen record right now because I'm going to try to like put this on maybe YouTube. But I'm definitely going to include all your YouTube videos that you're pumping out. We talked about this offline, guys. Markson uh, potentially going to make some sort of webinar down the road where you can pay to play and learn all this stuff hands on, and I will be signed up because this is a weakness of mine. And I, like I said, I, I'm not bullshitting you, dude. I didn't, I didn't know how to do any of this.
3: So now you notice, Dan. You've got that that there's a line there. It says Earth Point tobo Map, correct? Yep. Yeah. And if you click on and click off you can just you can zoom into a spot what's really nice is you zoom into a ridge and you can look at the contour lines you can look at the trails and then with one click of the button you're right in the same view and satellite
2: absolutely all you got to
3: do is turn it on turn it off back and forth yep it's so powerful um so here's a tip though the the earth the topo map layer does not work past a certain degree of tilt okay so what you have to do if you start zooming in and you start tilting which we may talk about here in a second you have to do to reset everything to like you can't see the topo or the topo looks really uh, askew because remember when you tilt google earth okay you're tilting the view when you tilt a two-dimensional topo map it's going to look weird. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so if it starts to – or sometimes if you get past, I think, 60 degrees, I'm not sure about that. If you get past a certain tilt, let's just leave it there, it will stop showing up, and you'll think that your topo map layer is not working. Well, that's not true. It's just you've got your tilt too much. And you know up in Google Earth, you've got up in the right-hand corner, you've got your north. You can spin that around. You know, you, know, you can spin it around to yeah. change direction. Yep. So a real simple tip is when you want to just start – you've been moving around and you've been tilting and you're like, I need to reset this. Just go to view and go down to reset and say reset. Here's the key is tilt and compass. Reset both. Got it. Okay? And, and that flattens it all out again. Mm-hmm. And now your, now your topo map layer will work perfectly. Did it. Got it. Awesome. So, you know, so that's a real imp- – I do that all day long. I'll be tilting and looking from – like Google Earth is the dream for glassing spots. There is no tool better, in my opinion, than Google Earth using the tilt. So let's just talk about that. So find – you know, I just find a mountain little, not a mountain, but find a little peak based on your topo lines. We're not going to get into how to read topo maps, but find a little high spot, switch back to um, satellite view. Got it. And then you're going to zoom in on that little peak. And then the the bezel up in the right-hand corner where it has the north. Don't mess with the north don't spin it around, but the, the buttons below, a lot of guys know this, but I don't know that they really know it is that your tilt. Right. And so you can start to tilt, and you got to kind of be careful of the angle, but as you tilt, the problem is it starts to go away from the spot that you were looking at. You know what I'm saying? It It starts to look further away. Yeah. So what I, what I always do to avoid that is, Like go back. So now now we've tilted. So now we're kind of messed up. So now I'm going to go to my view real quick. I'm going to hit reset, tilt, compass. I'm telling you, this will become your best friend. You go right back to the tilt you were. I will drop a pin. I'll just click on the pin. I'll drop it. I usually won't even name it. I'll just put it untitled. Um, I'll drop a pin. Then I'll go back. Now I'll start to tilt again. And what you're doing is, I know this is simplistic stuff, but it's important. You can now kind of slide back and stay on that pin so you know where your reference point is. So then as you're tilting, you can always recenter that pin in the center of your screen. Does that make sense? Yep. It's real hard to find a ridge back when you're tilting because you're looking further away. Fact, I know that's hard to do on podcasts, but so anyway, that's how I use tilt. Um, to look at what I can see from a certain spot. So now I'm on top of this little ridge and I've got my tilt, you know, at whatever degree I'm at. And I'm kind of overlooking this, this canyon. And now I want to see what I can do from that same spot. I want to see from 360 degrees around me. Well, that's when you grab the north button or the north icon right above those little, and you just start spinning around. But you notice when you start spinning around, the same thing's going to happen. You're not exactly in the same spot. But if you've got your marker, you can just drag right back to it. It makes it real simple. I've found that a lot of guys won't place that marker, and that marker is really important to keep you on task with the spot that you're trying to evaluate. So again, now we've got our tilt all messed up, and, and again, I'll just go to view, reset. I wish there was a keystroke. I hate the fact that they do not have a quick key for this. Yeah. You got to go to the menu for, I, yeah, but anyway, tilt and compass. Bam, you're right back to the same view. You know, on the Earth Point topo layer, you can see all the trails. And, you know, that are, well, you can see the trails that are on that particular topographic map. Now, keep in mind, not all topographic maps are created equal some of them are very old but the trail systems are pretty reliable i'll be honest i mean there's just they're pretty reliable you know in the class we talked one quick thing about google earth in the class we talked about evaluating trails and this is i i really can't believe more people don't do this so when i'm looking at that remember we talked about looking at those areas that are not inside our circle zones so when I'm looking at an area and I'm looking at a trail system that kind of runs up, let's say I've got this area and I found a couple of remote spots. But now I'm seeing on the topographic layer on Google Earth, I'm starting to see some trails through that area. Right. Well, and so the first thing I do, Dan, is I always evaluate those trails. And what I mean by that is you can't do this very well in, on X and you can't do it very well in Gaia. Because in order to do it effectively, you have to be able to get the maximum zoom image to do it. So I've got a, I've got just a random trail pulled up on my screen. So you'll look for, to give an example, look for a trail that runs down a canyon or runs anywhere. But look on your topographic layer. You've got Earth Point turned on. Find where the trail crosses some meadows or open, real open areas whether you know the not green area sorry to be so simple on this but i want to make sure we cover everybody so i've got this trail now that's running through this open meadow so now i'm going to turn off my topographic layer i'm going to zoom in on this trail where this trail is i'm looking at it right now so i'm lo- i'm looking at soda butte trail in i don't know 70, wyoming for some reason i just it's just up i'm zoomed on this trail And I'm gonna click on the topo map to make sure I'm on the trail. And I am, and I'll click off the topo map. And on this particular trail, I can see the trail really clear. Not only can I see the trail, I can see multiple trails. I can see where horses, and this is pretty much the only case where they've two tracked it, which I mean, they're technically not supposed to do that. But one, the trails is getting worn out, so they just start walking beside it. Well, now there's a double, you know what I'm saying, Dan, right? Yep, that makes sense. So now, so, so in Google Earth on this particular one, I'm seeing two trails. So that concerns me right off the bat because I can tell right now on this trail, one, it's highly visible from the air, which means it does get some use. I'm a little concerned about this trail now because I'm seeing a two-track trail. So that's usually not from people. That's usually a stock indication. So that could be recreation. It could be outfitters. could be whatever. So I'm going to do some more investigation on that trail. So what I mean by that is I'm going to trace that trail back to the trailhead. Okay? And I'm going to look at that trailhead in Google Earth. Right. Is and see what kind of parking lot we're talking about, and um, and if it's a giant parking lot, you can see horse tie ups, and you can see a bunch. You know that that is getting some use. Again, I know this is simple stuff, but so many guys don't spend the time to analyze to check it at this level. But the example I did in the class, I had it. I was looking at unit three eighty. I try to pick these units for examples that are super super hard to draw. Or to prove my point, they're in the wilderness area of Montana, which I think is the worst rule on the planet. Um, so that I wasn't infringing on anybody's hunting spots. Not, and I didn't pick them because of hunting quality. Just be clear about that. Yeah. So, but the example I gave was this trail showed up and went right through the middle of my hunting area that I was looking at. So I really wanted to know about that trail. Well, I looked that trail over in four or five meadows, and I could never pick that trail up. Not once. Not even in the slightest faint impression could I pick it up. Well, in my mind, I'm loving that scenario because that's not a guarantee, guys. But it certainly gives me some faith that this trail is not highly recreationally used, which I like. But I don't really care so much about recreation as much as I care about hunting. But when I can find them where they're not real clear or they're very, very, very faint, I'm feeling better about that spot. Now, I don't like to hunt right next to trails anyway, but the point is that's how you get in and out of a lot of places. And some, you know, you you can go cross country, of course, but if you're going to use the trails going in and out, this is a good technique to look at. And that doesn't mean that I won't pack in a spot that I can see the trail. I've got a great spot in Wyoming that I love to hunt. Outfitters just wear this trail out. I know it, though. I'm prepared for that. I know where they're going. Their camps are like 18, 20 miles in. I'm only going to go seven or eight. Right. So, But my point is I'm knowing this ahead of time. And that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying you're looking for trails that don't exist and and that you can't see all the time, but I'm just saying that I want to use these tools to put, like I said, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I'm trying to increase the odds that I'm going to run into elk and all of the factors that we talk about in the class and all the factors that we talk about today. And even a lot more than this, I look for trends. I look for places that have combinations of things they have the north slopes they have the nice benches they've got a trail in the canyon that you can't see or even better there's a canyon or a drainage with no trail in it um you know i'm looking for food sources i'm looking for beetle kills and sparse timbers uh and edges of fires. not even old even new fires i mean all these little factors that you hear rainy newberg has a lot of little series on these too and they're great but you're trying to stack the odds in your favor and putting all these things together really helps to do that.
2: Dude, I love it. And when you have Onyx Hunt pulled up next to Google Earth and you can toggle back and forth, if do you think at some point Onex Hunt will be able to duplicate a Google Earth vibe with the overlay of the private, public, state, land, etc.?
3: Okay, so there is um that's the other thing there are private land kml layers oh snap. um for google earth yeah there are and Mon- for montana for any montana people montana celestial has one um but the the thing is i don't use it for that i'll just be honest with you i don't have a private land layer on mine right um so uh Cause I use on X and I use Gaia for that. And when it comes to private land and the guys, again, you're, this is what's great about podcasts and all this information. Dan and I kind of have the similar belief. He likes to hunt remote, non-pressured elk. So do I, I don't, I don't try to hunt checkerboard elk, meaning private. I don't, I don't like that. I don't like to, border you know cut the borders of private try to get into a little honey hole um now i will cut the borders of private to get back to a remote spot don't get me wrong i love remote spots that are next to private um but i'm not trying to like find uh a checkerboard area and hunt a little patch here and there that's just not my style hunting but it works very effective guys do it and but that's where onyx shines That's where Gaia, these tools, there's tools for that. What I'm saying is use Google Earth for what Google Earth is good for and use the other tools for what they're good for. And I'm not convinced that the Google Earth private land layers are always as up to date or potentially as up to date as like Onyx would be. When it comes to private land borders and being accurate and being up to date, Onyx is about the best you can possibly get. I'm a Gaia guy too. I'm a big Gaia fan. If anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's GaiaGPS.com. It it is a fantastic tool. It's what I use almost exclusively. But I never, ever go into the woods or into the backcountry without both of those apps updated and both of the download maps complete for both Gaia and Onyx. I use them both simultaneously. There's good features for both. So if you only have enough money for one, fine. But if you can afford both, have both. Um, so the one other thing I'm going to say about KML, and this is the one that's going to blow your mind if you don't know about this already. I probably don't. This is my – if you don't know about Earth Topo, then I know you don't know about this. So there's a there's a website out there, and these guys are – these are legit. Now, it's a pay website, but for this part, it's free, which I can't believe it if you go to toprut.com, then we're going to pick a unit. We're going to pick unit 380 for an example in Montana because it's like almost impossible to draw. So we'll we'll just pick it. So you go to toprut.com and you'll click on unit maps. And once you get to that, it's real simple. You'll choose your state. You'll just say Mon- Montana. You'll choose your species. You'll say elk you'll choose your unit which would be 380 and you'll type in your email address and again these guys don't market to you and stuff so uh, you know it's not I wouldn't be too worried about that I mean you always worry about a little bit I mean you got to do email for everything you agree to their terms whatever and you hit submit Okay, so then it'll say it was successful, and it say it's sending you a link. So in a few minutes, you're going to get an email, um, an auto-generate email from TopRut. And you're going to – it, it you know, it'll take whatever time it takes for your mail to, um, to come.
2: Awesome. I'm excited mm- – I heard you talk so about now, Top Rut and I was like, I didn't I actually haven't looked into it yet, so you're forcing me to do it. I love it. Yeah. So anyway, so
3: you get the you'll get this file, and I'm not gonna wait for mine. My, my my email here is it, it does take a few minutes. It might take up to a couple of minutes. Okay, fair but enough. What you're gonna what you're gonna do have you gotten yours yet?
2: Um no. Okay.
3: So we're just gonna talk for a minute while we're waiting. So what you're going to do is going to be very similar to that Earth Point file. It's going to come in an email, and you're going to download it. Now you might be able to double click it in some in a Mac. I can double click it right out of email, but you just open the file. It's a KML file, so most computers will identify a KML file as a Google Earth um, kind of format, so they'll open up Google Earth anyway. They'll just do it. Oh, so I think I just got it. Um no, I didn't. That's something else. So anyway, you'll open that file and it'll it'll come in the temporary places just like and then it, you'll want to drag it up to my places, but it'll come it'll say mt-unit 380 elk. And it is a treasure trove <laughs> of information. <laughs> What's nice about this? Is it's got every thing and that you can get all this stuff. It's all available by KML if you if you uh, do searches for it. But you have to organize it all. These guys have bundled this all together in one. I just got mine. Um, Has bundled it all together in one fail swoop. And what I like about what they've done is um, it's by unit. You're not downloading the whole state. So it runs a little cleaner on your computer. You start downloading giant um, public property for the whole state or for the you know, whole national free- really slows down your computer or slows down Google Earth, not your computer. So you're going to get an email. It's going to have a download link. You just click the download now button. And then it'll tell you about it. You just hit download.
2: I'm dropping it in and my
3: process. And then, and then you just open it.
2: And it's automatically taking me to that unit once I dropped it in. Yeah. So we're looking like we're south. Yeah. we are so- oh, these the Elkhorns? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've always heard about this area, and I've driven around it through Helena, but yeah. So it and it outlines <laughs> so the I, unit. I
3: feel, yeah. So it's
2: got the unit boundaries. Um, it's got
3: um, a whole bunch of things I want to talk about, but let's. It's got a whole bunch of things. So let me get mine pulled up here. Hold on. I've got it. Unit seventy pulled up. I did unit seventy as my demo for the class. I'm going to open up this one eighty. Might not quite
2: downloaded yet. It's not a huge file, but it takes. Yeah, it was 50. This one was 55 megabytes. And while we're talking about memory and and phones and stuff for guys that are using Onyx, like when you buy your next phone, seems like guys are getting new phones every couple years. Don't skimp on a low memory phone. Uh, Like I buy the phone with the biggest memory, and I don't delete anything, and I save and film. And I download all the, like, I have so many units downloaded from my Onyx just for off-grid purposes. And memory should never be an issue when it comes to using your phone or device while hunting. The end.
3: Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's the same old adage damn, you know, pay once, cry once. And <laughs> I can't tell you how many guys i go hunting with that, oh, crap, I got I to gotta delete some maps because I got to fit it on. Exactly. Well, I can tell you another thing about phones. When you – so this is something else. You, Dan, that was a great tip. Here's another tip. You want to look at the memory on your phone. Go to settings. Go to memory allocation. And you never want your phone maxed out. If your phone is like in the red zone, you're, you're, you're off, your map functions are going to be terribly slow. You want to always make sure you've got about 20% if you can – would be ideal open on your hard drive on your phone on your you know your extra memory you don't want it maxed out when you go on a hunt you download if it's maxed out just just delete some of your downloads for other other areas that you don't need you can always re download them it's not that big a deal honestly when I go into a hunt I'll tell you how I do it is even though I've got a big phone with big memory I bought, like you did, I bought the most memory possible. I still delete a lot of my offline files. I have found, and again, this is just, I have no basis for this, but both Gaia and on they both work better when you don't have a lot in memory. So I like to run lean on mine.
2: Mm-hmm. Now
3: that doesn't mean I skimp on my hunt areas, but you know, it's real simple to download an area and put it back on if you're ever going to go back to that area. But if you've got places on there that you just don't – you're not going to go on this hunt, then don't carry it around. Your phone will work so much better and be more reliable if you can keep your memory real clean and fresh. So um, just keep that in mind. Got it. Pro tip. Okay. So – Mine's still downloaded, but I'm gonna talk about the features of this. Now you've got it says Montana MT-Unit 380L, correct? Yep. Okay. So you can if you there's a little arrow under my places that expands that expands that that folder. So basically what you just downloaded was not a KML file. Okay, it was a collection. KML files I see it was a fold it was a folder full of KML files okay so we're gonna go down through these real quick this is where the power is if you don't understand this it's hard to use this top rep file this is the key so I always have the unit turned on you know I can you can turn on the unit boundaries Um, if you click unit boundaries you can just see it'll turn on and off Forest Service, awesome. You can click on Forest Service private. It shows all the private land and Forest Service boundaries. I mean, again, roughly. You turn it on and off. It makes a green overlay for Forest Service. It's got the freaking motor vehicle use map layer built in. You can turn it on. The roads will show up. Um, now they don't have obviously some national forests don't public. They just don't have available. There's you know you can't use this at hundred percent, but. Private land. It's got a private land layer, like we talked about, Dan. Um, You turn it on and off. It's all white. It's great. I'm looking at Unit 70 for all you Wyoming people. If you're looking at a unit and you can't hunt wilderness because of the piece of crap rules that Wyoming has for non-resident, we can go fish all day. They'll take all of our money all day to go in the wilderness areas. We'll travel there. We'll fish. We can backpack. We can do anything we want in the wilderness except hunt blows my
2: mind you don't even get me started but anyway, because that, when that was my rant i just want that's done with my
3: rant i just wanted to throw that in.
2: <laughs> dude i need who if somebody's listening and you have way too much money let's start a lawsuit against wyoming i have a wyoming tag it's in an area that's like half wilderness half not uh the beauty of this podcast is i met a guy two years ago who said hey if you ever draw this unit i'll take you in there and I'm going to be able to hunt the wilderness, but I have to be within a voice distance. He had to fill out my tag license so he could get a, a resident guide license. I'm not paying him. He's just having to do paperwork with the state. so I can hunt public land that I already spend money to to have. And so if anybody's out there that really wants to sue Wyoming, I'm on board because and Wyoming residents are going to hate me. and Wyoming guide and associate outfitter guys are really going to hate us, but like, look, dude. We should be able to hunt public land. If I can camp there, backpack there, but I can't hunt there, doesn't make sense to me.
3: Yeah, you got, when, you got me when all is up. allowed. That's right. So anyway, enough of the rain, I guess. <laughs> so in your case, now I know you've got unit 380, which I don't know if there's any wilderness area in 380 or not. Um,
2: this BLM it, Forest and State, that's it.
3: Yeah, so the one I'm looking at has U.S. Forest Service Wilderness. It's Unit 70 in Wyoming. It's right up by the Yellowstone border. So if you download your Wyoming unit that you're going to hunt this year, you can turn on and see the wilderness layer in Google Earth. It's freaking awesome. Love it. So now you can turn on below that. This is where it gets a little messy. This is contours and roads in every National Forest map. Wow. I mean, I'm sorry. In every topographic map by name. Okay. So you can turn all those if you want to. I don't. So let me back up. I don't use top rut for topographic. Okay. I I like the motor vehicle use. I like the boundaries. I like the the private Forest Service, all that stuff. But I use that Earth. I think the Earth Point is a little easier to use for um, for, Google Earth, um, for Google Earth. So I don't really mess around too much with these, but you can. My point is they're hard to turn on and off because you got to turn them all on and off. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's, it's a little messy, but you can. But one of the things I do love is you can see down, Dan, at the bottom, the fire history. I just clicked it that
2: and it just popped up. Oh, right. it's gold. Right off i Not only does it not
3: only does it have fire history, but it has it by year. That's if you beautiful. if you expand that folder, you can turn on the whole folder,
2: or you can turn it on by year. Yeah, so let's go 2015. Yeah, it's really phenomenal. Not not much to speak of in this unit, but in 2012 or 2000, there was a really big fire in the unit. So see, and, and every unit you download
3: will have different years, obviously based on when there's fires. Um, so it's a really great tool. So what I can do is turn on that fire layer. So this is where it gets really oh you really gosh. get geeked out with this. So you can turn the fire layer on, okay? And then go back to your earth point and turn on your topo. And now you've got fire in the topo view. Ugh. Yep. By by combining the two. Does that make sense? Yep. Now, there's one little issue you got to make sure about here. Mine's down. Mine's slow here right now. My internet's so bad here. Um so anyway, you can see, um, oh, my 380 opened up. That's why it's being slow on me. So now I've got my topo turned on. I've got my fire turned on. Now, one of the things, I, I'm double checking this before I open my mouth. That's why I'm having a little pause here. I hate to say stuff that's not correct. You may have to, depending on how you got your Googler set up, you may have to drag and drop. Remember, Google Earth works in layers. Okay? So you may have to move the folder that says Montana Unit 380 Elk and your Earth Point Topo Map. You may have to drag them on top of each other to get things to show up. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, and I, I think I would have to to get those to pop up together. Yeah, or or
3: you can change the transparency. This is another thing people don't know. So uh, I mean, not that they don't know. So let's click on Earth Point. Turn on your topo Earth Point topo map. Mm-hmm. This is another feature of Google Earth that people don't really even know exists, which is kind of surprising. But if you're clicked on, click on the actual layer. It doesn't matter where you're at on the screen, but just click on that Earth Point topo map layer. And then down at the bottom of that window of my places, there's a search hourglass, and then adjust opacities. Oh, yeah. And you can slide that down and you can kind of – that's a way for you to see the roads in the aerial photo view. You can just change the opacity of any layer to kind of see through to the next, if that makes sense. Got it. And that, com- that comes in really handy when you're trying to kind of get a, get a good picture of how it's working. I know this is real hard to do on the phone on a on a podcast, but I think people are getting the point here.
2: Well, I've already learned some stuff that I need to practice with, and I got some like I'm going to be doing this with my unit in Wyoming, and then uh, I drew a muley tag for uh, August in uh, Idaho, and it's like it's not that great of a hunt, but I'm going to be able to scout it out quite a bit better and at least figure out where I want to glass from and pull up some old fires and make sure and really the unit boundary i love that and then especially for wyoming i can have that awesome wilderness layer and then i can mess with the opacity dude this this is gold this is why i wanted to get you just on one finite topic and get guys to that are listening to this podcast to go home and play this podcast in the background of their desktop and get themselves right. And we, uh, This has been very valuable, man. So to wrap it up for today, w- you've done some YouTube videos that guys can watch beyond this podcast. Where can they find those?
3: Uh, my YouTube channel is Treeline Pursuits. And if you just search Treeline Pursuits, you'll see it. I've got three digital scouting videos up now. And they kind of went through the progression, Dan, that we talked about. The first one was um, doing the pressure, you know, pressure analysis and core hunting areas, and then what and then the next one, I it, I don't know exactly what order. And it's the hunt plan. It goes really through how to set up your hunt plan and kind of the strategies with that. And then I'm working on now. I've you and I talked before we started the podcast. I've had such great feedback. I've been really Surprised and I'm I'm very happy that it's been helpful. But after this went Western Hunting Summit, I got so much great feedback and I've beginning getting so much good feedback from my YouTube stuff that I think what I'm going to do next is put together a full webinar tutorial educational platform for digital scouting from beginning to end, six or seven series. It's gonna be like 10 hours of training. And eight to 10 hours of training, it'll be super cost. It's just basically helped me pay for my time to put this all together. And, um, you know, the bottom line is one of the reasons I am motivated. I get some hate mail on this day and I'll be honest with you guys are like, why in the hell are you doing this? Sure. I'm like, well, coming from Missouri, Dan, I would have died to have this kind of stuff. I wish, wish anything like this, would existed when I started coming east to west. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm in it to hunt elk just like the rest of us. I mean, Dan, you talked about even sharing one of your units that you hunt and really um, going through the whole thing. I think that's pretty uh, amazing. But, you know, I think you're in it for the same. I love helping people learn how to and hunt elk. Amen. I, take, I take people, my buddies, all my friends from Missouri. I take a group of them every year elk hunting. Every year. And I don't look at it as I'm sacrificing my hunting time. I, I love being with those guys or find the friends of mine, but they're beginner. They're actually now after three years, they're starting to get it, but some of them are real beginnerish and, you know, and that's okay. But I love calling elk, man. I mean, I love calling elk almost as much as I love killing elk. And, uh, so I just love all everything about it. So that's really my motivation for doing this is, one, it keeps me on top of my game by by preparing all this stuff and working through it. I can't tell you how many times I've forgotten stuff that I used to do. I'm like, oh, man, I need to get back to that. Um, and so it helps me as well, oh, just in the process of preparing it. So, yes, I have three videos up now, but I think I am going to change directions and do a really comprehensive presentation slash live, not live, but slash video example model like we talked coming up in the next it'll probably won't be ready for this hunting season but uh, I've got three pretty good videos I think out now they're very long I want to warn you ahead of time I get into the details on this stuff I don't like two minute YouTube videos that tell you almost nothing um, they're pretty intense so when you sit down to watch these things be prepared to <laughs> be prepared. Yeah, and uh, so that's about it. Yeah, and Tree line pursued. You can follow me on Instagram there too. Feel free to send me any messages you got, and I'm glad to answer them. Do what I can.
2: Well, thanks for coming on, man. Like I do think this is pure gold, and we gave enough information here to get people. You know, you give them just enough to make them a little bit dangerous, and then <laughs> there's a handful that are just like me that are all or none. They're going to burn the ships down, and they're going to sign up as soon as you come out with your program and and go next level but truly this is one of the things i feel like you can control and there's a lot of things you cannot control when you're elk hunting and i always tell people you control your effort and your attitude and i'm going to add the third one now you can control how much you digitally prepare for your hunt because we live in the greatest day and age of elk hunting and take full advantage
3: yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you got 10 days, guys, okay. you live. I, how, what's that hashtag everybody uses? Is it, is it September yet? Yeah. We live for that month if you're a bow hunter. I mean, we just live for it. I don't want to live on the side of the road trying to figure out where my next place is going to hunt is. I want to be motivated, excited, always prepared, feeling good about it. I've got options. And I want to spend every moment I can elk hunting in less time. And what else are we going to do in the months that aren't September? I mean, come on. (laughs)
2: That's for real,
3: dude. (laughs) You're going to train. You're going to sign up for elk shape. You're going to get your ass in shape. And then you're going to do some digital scouting. And you're going to hit the ground running in September.
2: Yeah, dude. 100%. Well. Thanks for coming on, man. I know you're busy. I just stole two hours out of your busy day, and um, I hope guys can appreciate that, you know, your wealth of knowledge, and I don't know anyone who knows more about this stuff than you. So keep doing what you're doing, Mark. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you, and uh, have a great rest of your summer, and good luck this fall. Uh, You too, brother. All right, man. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Welcome to the 2-Minute Drill, sponsored by Elk 101. I'm going to sit down and chat with the elk hunting wizard himself, Corey Jacobson, two minutes on the clock. Hurry up offense style. Corey's going to drop knowledge bombs, and you are going to get better at elk hunting. So without further ado, here's Corey, and here is our topic of the day. So last week, Corey, you touched on the the common bugle and run bull, and you kind of went down that path. Let's go ahead and carry on. There's other reasons why they do that. Let us know. Drop that knowledge.
1: Yeah, so last week we talked about – you know, hunting these areas that are heavily pressured and elk being wary because of other hunting pressure. But there are a couple other reasons I think are worth understanding. The first is the age or the the dominance of that bull. And if you have a younger bull, that typically those are the bulls that are going to come in and actually round up the harems in the early part of September. And they're going to think they're the herd bull for you know a week maybe until the real herd bulls show up. But during that time frame, those younger bulls that are with the cows that think they're the herd bulls, they're pretty timid. They don't always want to lose those cows to a bigger sounding bull. So if you have a younger bull that has established this harem but knows he's not the dominant bull, he might bugle and run. He might be very vocal but not as aggressive to come in to the calls. On the flip side, if you have a, a big dominant herd bull who's now come in, he's established his dominance, he's fought, he's taken over that herd, he's typically only going to do that. Those big herd bulls typically spend a very limited amount of time with the cows, and it's really when they're ready to be bred. So during the peak rut, when the cows are in estrus, those big bulls are going to come and be with the harem, and they're focused solely on breeding. And so it can be hard to pull him away you know, with some – Nice cow calls when he knows he's got these cows right in front of him that are coming into estrus, and he doesn't want to leave them and take a chance of a satellite bull coming in and stealing a cow or breeding a cow. And so it's really important in those cases to understand the thought process and get inside that elk's mind. Do you want to be timid with a younger bull and get him to come into the calls? Do you want to get in close and be really aggressive with those bigger herd bulls and really make them feel like you're putting pressure on those cows and their only option is to come in and and fight you to keep you away from their their cows? Hey, elk hunters, Corey Jacobson here from elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic. From planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between, the University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today.
2: Guys, we did it. We finally dropped an episode on e-scouting. I'm pretty pumped about this one. A lot of layers to peel back here. Remember, this is something that you're going to get better over time, but you need to listen to this podcast and try the things as Mark's coaching you. That's what I did. That's why you hear some clicking in the background. Download the Top rut, Go to their website. It's free for a lot of the stuff. Mark talked about Google Earth Pro. Obviously, I think most have that. He's got a YouTube website and then Gaia, and there's just... KLM files are not that hard. I was able to download and drop them into my places, and it worked out. So do some last-minute scouting. Mess around with this stuff. Find a couple extra vantage spots or where to camp or where to park, a couple other roadless areas in your unit. Learn it a little bit better with the time you have. You can control your effort and attitude, and this e-scouting falls under effort. I thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Tune in next week. We're bringing on a public land elk slayer this guy has literally i think he went six for six on the elk hunting learning curve so he didn't really have a learning curve but he's out of idaho and his name's dan salzman and he's on next week and you're listening to this right now and some of you are getting ready for nevada for your first hunt a lot of you are getting prepped for whitetails some of you are even getting some you know trail cameras out for elk and scouting last minute gear this is the best time of year where you really need to make sure that You prep for your hunt, but you don't neglect your family. Fill their cups up full. Take care of your business so you can hunt your hardest. We'll catch you on the next one.